0: I said gonna be alright. I said
1: be
2: alright. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. Today, Friday, September twenty third, twenty sixteen, episode four thirty two. It's being broadcast live from our studio C in McKees Rocks, PA. My name is Cliff Slotnick, or the Z-Man. John, you got to have faith. Our show engineer is at the controls in Studio E. Today, my guest or my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, is teaching a course in Kansas City, Missouri. Today's segments include the IQ Radio trivia question, an interview with today's guest, Jim Pemberton. Remember, I write and post a blog after each show. Check it out at our website, www.iaqradio.com. Now it's time to thank our marquee sponsors.
3: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondo That's johndon.com.
1: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
3: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net.
1: And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us.
3: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
2: Remember, you can also download the show by going to our website, IQRadio.com, and following the link that says go to the show. The show is also available through iTunes. Don't forget, you can obtain your ABIHCM points. IICRC continuing education credits or ACAC renewal credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Radio Joe's email is use at Now for the IQ radio trivia question. Win a cool prize by out competing fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to the seesalotnick C's the at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text them the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Doug Conan, AeroTech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, for the first correct answer to last week's IQ Radio Trivia question. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, Friday, September 23rd, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio Trivia question. Name the father of vocational education in the United States, who was also the architect of the smith Use Act of 1917. Today's guest is Jim Pemberton, who grew up working in his father's cleaning and restoration business. He is a second-generation industry trainer and is president of Pemberton's Cleaning and Restoration Supplies. Jim has been training cleaners throughout the United States and Canada since 1979 and has been a featured presenter at many industry events, has contributed articles to leading trade journals, and is recognized as a master of most things textile. We have some intro music for Jim.
0: don't need no thought control. No dog sarcasm in
2: the classroom. Wow. Okay, Jim, uh, do we have you? You have me. Good. I can't believe how fast Doug answered that trivia question. It's amazing. But, again, two in a row. Well done, well done, Doug. Congratulations well, Doug. for joining us. You're a busy guy, and I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me for an hour today.
4: It's my pleasure. Uh, you may remember I was one of the first people I think you interviewed when you started this. Program. I know
2: absolutely, and you know the funny thing is, you know we both talk about how long we've been in the industry, and I think both of us have witnesses to that. <laughs> I mm-hmm. remember when I used to uh, stop by and pick up products. Uh, you know, your dad's business, and you would be the person that would wait on me and talk to me. And, wow, I mean, you were interested as a young fellow. I remember that very, very clearly. Thank you, Cliff. Well, you had more hair then, but other than yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> but we both did. So. Okay, Jim, as a second-generation industry educator and the son of an industry pioneer, regarding teaching, me- teaching method and style, what have you learned from your dad that you keep the same? And then what have you done differently?
4: Yeah, that's a tough question for a guy that uh, still feels in his father's shadow and deservedly so for what Lee gave our industry. Uh, Giving that some thought, I think the thing is that I'm, if anything, I'm more the same than he was uh, after a period of uh, trying to be more different. And to give that a clear answer, when Lee was teaching in the 70s and early 80s, he focused very much on the practical daily skills the cleaner needed and hands-on application. I think I became enamored with vocabulary and uh, fancy chemistry and things that uh, found it exciting when I was putting a class together but probably wasn't always needed by the students on a daily basis. So if anything, I've I've learned to follow his dictum that less is more and to always keep the students' needs ahead of my own. And uh, by that, I think I am more like him. If there's anything that I'm just not doing anymore, it's using overhead projectors and uh, carousel slides.
2: Right. Well... I mean, I remember the overheads and, you know, yeah. we had PowerPoint and you that goes way back. But I think one of the interesting things that, about your dad was that, you know, he had a, a very solid background as a dry cleaner. And, you know, he knew a lot about textiles. And that's uh, primarily what I remember him teaching me. I remember taking classes from him in, you know, upholstery cleaning and carpet cleaning and on-location drapery cleaning. And I think that... Um, you know, the way he taught it was a practical way because people needed to learn how to do it. And, uh, you know, you came out of there and, you know, you kind of had the skills. And I think it is different than a lot of vocabulary, a lot of big words, uh, and a lot of chemistry. You know, you grew up in a family business that provided both cleaning services and provided products to other restoration professionals you have many years of experience what changes have you observed in the industry's training model
4: you know what's troubling is not many other than the fact that uh you know early trainers were using the overhead and the carousel slides there's still in my mind too much of just a classroom rote memory type of training and i don't think it was very good then but it was the best we could do but as you know, We've all learned as a society how people learn and how people absorb information and how they use it. I just think in a lot of ways we're still teaching a 20th century model to a 21st century audience, and that's disappointing, and I, I do think that there needs to be changes in that. Some individuals are doing, but as a rule, our education system is still two or three days of sitting in a classroom with just a little bit of hands-on or demonstration and people with the technical bent uh, and that have to do things with their hands in an on-the-job situation, I I just don't believe they learn well that way.
2: Yeah, you know, I think they may learn that well if what we were teaching was computer science or or something like that. Because I noticed more and more students, you know, would bring their uh, laptops and their tablets and and stuff like that for 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 taking notes, but. Uh, you're right. You know, we live in. You know, I think what we do very much is is really vocational training. You know, we're teaching people how to make a living. We're teaching people, you know, how to become a craftsman and, and learn the craft and learn the skills that, that, that are necessary. You know, in, in today's industry, the word certification are, are very important. Uh, what does the word certification mean to you? And what what does it mean to your students?
4: To me, I've always thought it means that somebody else says that you are who you say you are or that you can do what you say you can do. And whether how the students interpret that, I'm not sure. Some see it as a diploma, but in a way, that's even what a diploma says. It says that a third party has decided that you're qualified to do something. So that's what I believe uh, certification, as it's done, is defined as. and. If, if that definition is that you know these things that you were taught, and I, I don't want to be unnecessarily critical of what we're doing, if that means they're certified that they understand how the, this textile reacts with this chemical, if this odor reacts this way in a fire restoration uh, place, if, uh, if the humidity is changed based on what you do. I mean, if it's certifying that you have that kind of technical knowledge, then that's accurate because you passed a test and you know that stuff.
2: You know, I think what you said at the end is more in tune with the reality of it. You know, you you do take a test at the end, and I think what that card is or that patch or that certificate that's on the wall says that you passed the test on a given day. You know, you met the the standard, whatever it was, uh, you know, whether you got a 99 or a 75 I think you know you passed the test uh, I don't think they actually give you a grade you know ABC or anything like that either it's I think it's more pass fail and that really you passed it on that particular day you know you, uh, the instructor was able to cram all that information uh, into your head you were able to, to study at night and keep it there then you were able to demonstrate at some point on an examination that you knew it so I think you knew it then You know, the question is, do you still know it now? You know, so many weeks or years later? uh, I don't know, I don't know. You know, most of the training in the industry is done by the IICRC. I would say that, you know, they probably do well over 90% of it. And, um, you know, the IICRC has a committee called Instructors and School Committee, and that committee uh, creates an examination and that examination then drives the curriculum that goes into the course. Is this the way that you build your personal Jim Pemberton courses, or do you do something different?
4: Oh, I've I've always been uncomfortable with a test driving a curriculum. And uh, and you know, in fairness, I don't I, the I C R C didn't have a model to follow, and I think that they've done well with what what they do, as you said. But since I don't use a test per se in my training, and my training, by the way, isn't a Jim Pemberton training. To be fair, the Fabric Pro class is one that was developed by a lot of people who helped me be better at what I do, uh, not the least, of which is my father, but other people in our industry. But, yes, I, I try to look at what the needs of the job is. You know, if this person in the field has to accomplish these things, these are the things that I'd like to teach in the course. One of the things that drove me away from the type of structured training that we do is that people would complete a course and then call me on the following Monday with a question that was really basic to their job, but they didn't know even though they could answer all the questions on the test. Or worse yet, they got in big trouble because they they, they memorized information, but they didn't learn anything, if you understand how I mean that difference.
2: And no, and I, I, I understand exactly and and
4: what happens when, when you have to teach to a test, and that is invariably what occurs, it's very hard to weigh one thing is more important to know than another because if you've got one to 200 questions to cover, you almost end up having to divide equally the amount of attention you give each one over a few days. But, you know, there's some things that you really got to know versus some things that are nice to know. And when it comes down to to getting into a memory type of training, It's very hard to weigh one in its priority over the other. I think that causes some of the trouble.
2: You know, you've been an outspoken critic about industry education. And what are the issues that bother you the most?
4: Well, I think I already led into it a little bit. And that is people who could memorize facts but not learn how to do their job. And it's not that many of those facts aren't important. I've seen people certainly grow as a a result of what they've learned or stay out of trouble. But in my mind, if somebody invests in sending an employee to a program uh, or go themselves, the costs far exceed just the tuition, travel costs, where you're staying and time away from your job or your family or your life. It's a lot of money to spend to have somebody leave that class and not necessarily know the basics or, again, weigh the importance of things. So my criticism is just that, that the training does not always adequately prepare the person for what they need in the field based on a structure that is more like a, a standard classroom or university structure. We don't, if we even send someone to public school, they don't sit for eight hours a day on one subject and learn that over two or three days. They get a half an hour to an hour of one subject over several weeks or a semester. Uh, which enables you time to absorb and use that information. Well, we can't practically do that when we send somebody for two or three days. So it it just becomes a force feeding program that very little sticks, in my opinion.
2: Uh, you know, I think your comment's well taken. You know, if it's general education, then I think that is broken up into you know, uh, you know, general studies that, that are all very, very different. It would seem to me that in vocational education, if someone is studying to you know become a bricklayer or a steam fitter or plumber or electrician, uh, that it would seem to me that you know the focus of that education, you know while it still may be broken up into a number of different segments, is still all pointed in the same direction where I think in you know general studies. Uh, You know, you're kind of pointed in a bunch of different directions, and I think the reason for that is, you know, perhaps to determine uh, what interests you most, so that later in life you know what you want to do in terms of an avocation. Perhaps I don't
4: know. I agree.
2: When did you officially discontinue teaching IICR courses, and why did you make that decision?
4: It was about five years ago. And, Cliff, uh, to be clear, when I made that decision, we didn't stop sponsoring any CRC courses here. Uh, I believe that they still fulfill a need that uh, our customers need, and I've uh, got some great people that do a good job for us. Um, you know Bill Wagon very well as an example. Oh, sure. Cross,
2: absolutely.
4: And Jeff Cross is another that really deliver a good product to our, to our customers. I myself couldn't train that way anymore because – the moment I stopped believing that it was a good training method for me and for my students, my enthusiasm waned very rapidly. And I felt that it was unfair to the students for me to continue to teach in that fashion. So those that can teach in that fashion and believe in, in what it does and, and have an enthusiasm for it, just frankly would do a better job. That freed me up to teach in the way that I wanted to teach. And that is a a far more of a teamwork, hands-on type of training and that was different than what the ICRC
2: offers. You know, my experience, I think, was very, very similar to to yours. Um, I remember teaching a WRT class. It was with the new uh, criteria, you know, when they added the, the formulas and you know, all this different terminology and, and so on and so forth. And I... He had a bill was there and I had a conversation with him at noon and I just told him that I can't do this and and uh you know he was able to pick up and finish the class and, and just do a great job but you know although you and I hadn't talked about this I had exactly the same i had exactly the same type of feeling that um, I didn't believe in it anymore and I couldn't do it anymore and uh you know I set the powerpoint clicker down that day and Uh, just never really picked it up again. Uh, You know, the IICRC supports the inclusion of more hands-on in courses. I think they're trying to make the courses better. Are these hands-on demonstrations realistic and effective, in your opinion?
4: I think they help a lot. And a lot of this depends on how much time the instructor is given. Uh, the, The problem that you have is with this confluence of, again, what has to be taught and how many hours in a day that the students can endure being in a classroom setting and the cost the students pay for the course. I mean, ideally, add a day to the course and add a day of hands-on, even if it's spread through three days would be great, but then you get to a higher pricing structure and you get to a certain amount of inconvenience that not everyone may want. But, yes, the hands-on helps. What what bothers me is too many times hands-on becomes really the instructor's hands-on demonstration it's very difficult to take people who've sat in a classroom for several hours, and they certainly want to be out of their chair, but they tend to crowd away and not want to step forward. And unless you have a very assertive instructor that, that grabs each one and makes them do it, uh, there ends up just being a, a few people participating and most people observing. It's better than nothing, but you know that's sort of damning with faint Praise Cliff to say that. Uh, you, you certainly should have a situation that can offer more, and as long as the constraints exist that pressure the instructor, got to get this test question covered, and you've got to get that test question covered, uh, he's under the gun. And I don't think it's altogether fair to him or the students, but it's what they're forced to do. So I, I just don't believe that, that there's enough time in the given structure for them to have the amount of hands-on that are probably really necessary. But again, I do see that the instructors make every attempt within the constraints that they work under.
2: You know, it, it seems to me that a lot of times, um, you know, because it's, it's limited in, in, in terms of time, that, you know, there is probably a demonstration or several demonstrations of a specific piece of equipment or a, you know, specific chemical uh, or a specific process, and that may or may not be uh, realistic in terms of what someone is going to encounter Um, you know, on a a project. And also, it it seems, in in my experience, that you're right in terms of spectator students. I find that a lot of them um, are uncomfortable doing a task in front of their peers. And, you know, one of the interesting things that that we used to do in in training is, is I would draft somebody you know, just out of the audience, and, you know, along with his participation, he then got to draft the next person. <laughs> so, you know, what happened is, you know, so no one really knew who was going to be involved or wasn't, but I, I do find that a lot of times people would want to watch rather than do it, and I think that's okay. I think people can learn by doing. I think people can learn by seeing. Uh, I just think it's a lot more difficult to learn, you know, when you're just looking at a PowerPoint or a slide and someone, um, you know, is giving you the, you know, the background. And, you know, you had mentioned Bill Wagon, and, you know, there are a lot of projects that our company did that he was involved with so he actually could speak with authority about, you know, what happened on that particular project. And I think one of the things in the industry is, I find that a lot of people are teaching information that's really not their information. Uh, you know, it's, an, it's an, uh, an instructor who, you know, is adding more categories. I think as, you know, some of the guys in the industry get older, you know, they, they don't want the grief and aggravation of running a business. Um, you know, you can make an okay living, you know, being an instructor if you want to live out of a suitcase and, uh, you know, sleep in a hotel room every night. And, you know, some of these guys that it's crazy the number of nights they're away from home and, um, you know, on the road. and It takes its toll. It takes its toll.
4: Yeah, I would never do that again. I, you know, I spent my period of time doing that. That I, I have such high admiration for the men and women who are doing this right now because I know the toll it takes. Yeah,
2: it's
4: you know, if I could add something that I, I wish I had said also in the answer regarding demonstration and spectator learning. Mm-hmm. One of the problems with that is the person who's chosen is under extreme stress. There's nothing like being the focus of that. And the rest of the people are passive, and they can contribute and learn a little bit, but unless you have an extremely disciplinarian instructor, it's hard to really control that the spectators are paying attention. What happens when you can have more of a long-term hands-on training program, then everybody's involved in the task, and the stress level is a lot lower. And then with teamwork and, and so forth, instead of one, particip- one demo tr- learning and a lot of spectators, everybody's doing it. Not only is everyone getting an opportunity, but frankly, that stress level, that feeling of being the target or the focus is gone. And I, I do believe that there's a better learning experience when you're in a more relaxed, safe place.
2: Um, do you tell them that everyone's going to do it? Absolutely. Okay.
4: Yeah, I make that clear.
2: No, I think it's. I think you know, it's almost like in the military. You know, it's like going through boot camp, and you know, everyone has to do everything. So, uh, I think it's a very valid, uh, very valid point. What about reciprocity between organizations? You know, uh, are you an advocate for a reciprocity in training between organizations?
4: Yes, I am. I, I've never understood why that's not been done more in our industry because uh, there is good training available. Uh, certainly, the validity of the training, and it, it seems to me that we are the only industry that doesn't allow it. I may be wrong, but I don't think so. And uh, I think that the, a broader base of experience and training actually enriches the learning experience, and you end up with a better person. Uh, excuse me, a better technician or, or a better trained person than you do if they, all learning is just through one group?
2: No, I, I, uh, I feel the same way. I think there should be reciprocity. I think there's a lot of duplication that's probably somewhat uh, unnecessary. But I think there's probably less duplication now because uh, the IICRC has a lot of the franchisors uh, you know, teaching their version, the franchisors' version of IICRC curriculum. So, uh, I think that that's better. You know, your father is a visionary. I mean, you know, God bless him. I mean, it's amazing what he could do with the computer. It's amazing what yes. he could do with uh, the internet and, and all this technology. And I, I, uh, it's really really amazing. And he's been an advocate for online education. What types of skills, you know, in your realm, do you think can effectively be taught online?
4: I don't consider myself the expert at this as others may be, but in, in my experience, I think a lot of the science and vocabulary can be taught through, you know, computer-based training. You anything that takes rote memorization. Uh, Anything that's working with definitions, standards, uh, the the, um, the formulas and mathematics of drawing, as an example, all of these things could be very easily done through CBT training.
2: And what don't you
4: think can be done? Uh, hands-on skills, uh, you know, how you hold a tool, uh, ergonomics. Uh, and by the way, going back to the computer-based training, certainly safety, uh, but... Going back to, quote, hands-on, donning and doffing protective gear, uh, usage of uh, of products, uh, mixtures, uh, things being done in a sequence, uh, all of those things require uh, doing it yourself, having that experience. You're not going to learn how to hammer a nail or clean a spot uh, through computer-based training.
2: I agree. Is there anything about the status quo of industry training we should mention before we begin to discuss recommendations for improving it?
4: I've, I've probably spoken to the status quo, and I, I don't mean for my diplomacy to lessen my feelings about the matter. I, I think the model needs vast improvement than what it is. My diplomatic comments are only because I do admire the individual's that are doing the things they're doing, and I think they're doing the best they can. But one of the things that always troubles me is how do you take something that's not working very well and change it in steps? It almost seems like it needs to start over, and I I know that's a big order, and it's an easy thing for an outside critic to say versus the people who are in the trenches to do. But the status quo is we're still... teaching people the way we taught them 25, 30 years ago, and it just doesn't work.
2: Well, I agree with you, but it's the same thing with Washington. You know, how how do we fix Congress? How do we fix, you know, our political system? I think that, you know, these incremental changes are really, really difficult. I think that, you know, we continue doing the same thing. I think, you know, we're looking for improvement, but, you know, when we keep doing the same thing, it's difficult to improve. Well, Jim, what we're going to do is I need you to hang on for 90 seconds. Uh, we're going to go to halftime, and when we come back, we're going to talk about you know, suggestions for uh, improving training and improving the industry.
1: Thank you. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization, mm-hmm dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org.
3: The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers.
1: Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
3: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. And of course our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, J O N D O N dot com. That's John Don.com.
1: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at com.
3: IQ dot net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net.
1: And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us.
3: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio. When you inquire about their services, and
4: products.
2: Okay, Jim. All righty. How important is proper, accurate learning of foundational basic skills by technicians?
4: Well, I, I think it's critical because the fact is that these technicians are, are working under more scrutiny than ever. And I don't mean from their boss. I mean from the public, the insured, whoever is going to be uh, present or whose property uh, or area they're working in. They've got to know their tasks. They've got to know it to do an increasingly difficult job technically and an increasingly uh, environment of a lot of scrutiny, including being videoed often when they don't even know it.
2: You know, one of the things that, that disturbs me is I, I've seen a couple of articles uh, appear in, in industry magazines, and uh, I, I've seen two of these that related to fire damage situation in very, very large stores. And I mean, these are like 50,000 square foot stores or 100,000 square foot stores. And uh, in, in one of these um, stories, uh, a, a company rented, if I'm not mistaken, a 100 plus hydroxyl machines, put them in the store for an incredibly long, period of time, and the deodorizing tab for this was six figures, Uh, and I had another situation where a friend of mine was consulting with someone on an odor control project, so I was kind of consulting with the consultant, and we had someone who was trying to deodorize a building, and it involved some foodstuffs, and again, it was a large building, and uh, this person did the same thing. He put in a large number of these machines. They were in there for a long period of time. He was kind of impressed with himself because you know, he felt that you know, he'd removed 70% of the, of the smoke odor that was in this, in this building, and then he, you know, he's going to submit this bill to the insurance company, again, for hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, there was another situation, where, a, a drawing situation. I think it was a JCPenney store and, you know, large loss, uh, and the company who did the drawing, and you know, it screwed up a lot of the inventory, you know, they're being sued for something like six and a half million dollars, you know, for the damage they caused. And I look at all these situations, and I see a failure of the people in charge to understand the fundamentals of what they're doing, you know, whether it's odor removal, whether it's structural drying, and you know, these people passed the test and they all knew the terminology and they could kind of quote a chapter and verse. They either don't have the practical skill or they don't have you know, the necessary knowledge or common sense. And I don't know whether you see this stuff happen.
4: I do. I, I used to call it passing the test and failing the course. Right. And that's just what you're speaking to. Unfortunately, common sense is an oxymoron and I don't know that we'll ever teach that. Uh, that. That's a hiring practice issue, I guess, or maybe a life skills practice. But while those are on a very large scale, I do see on an all too frequent basis just what I'd said earlier, that if someone that completes and passes a complicated course and goes out and, and fails at the most fundamental level of the job, and that still goes back to what was the learning process, what was the learning environment, uh, and how was that information weighted in importance to what the person learned. And also, this training in a very condensed time frame where they walk into the class with very little knowledge, and when the class is over, they walk away with very little after support. Ideally, some level of pre-study, whether it's as simple as reading a manual ahead of time or far better with the, you know what we can do today with some computer-based training to more adequately prepare you for the experience. Because, you know, that's what every instructor, and Cliff, you remember what it'd feel like, that you get a course where you have 20-year veterans and someone that was a carpenter last week and told they're a water damage restoration technician this week. How do you take both of those people and have them leave that course with equivalent value?
2: I think it's a challenge, but, you know, I think an instructor that has the freedom of not being chained you know to a curriculum has the ability to you know to satisfy both of those students I think when you're chained to an existing curriculum and you know you need to cover a test question every five or ten minutes it's much much harder if not impossible uh, you know to do and you know sometimes the 20 year veteran just you know needs the answer the, the you know I, one of the biggest challenges, I think, is when people just have learned bad habits. And I'm, I'm sure you probably see that a lot uh, in your course, where someone has you know, maybe five years of experience or maybe even more than that, but they, they just have developed bad habits because you know, I think that they just, you know, it was a bad course, or they just, again, they passed the test, but they didn't get the basic information that they need
4: it. I absolutely agree with that. Will Rogers had a saying that it isn't what a man doesn't know that gets him in trouble. It's what he knows that just ain't so.
2: <laughs>
4: and, and that is, it certainly applies to the people that uh, we make effort to train today. Um,
2: you take a different approach in your courses. Can you please explain what you're doing differently and what the benefits of that are?
4: Looking at the issues that I see unresolved by the training model that exists. What I do is I, I gather together the group in the very beginning so they understand what will happen, but I try not to have their, their backsides in chairs more than about 20 minutes and immediately break into group work. And group hands-on work, whether it's inspection or testing or the actual cleaning process, does a couple of things. One, it rapidly gets them interacting with the task at hand, The other is, if everyone's participating or working at one level, it keeps their stress level down, which, again, I believe high stress is a a real interference of education and learning. Then, after a certain section of this is done, the group, again, can get back into a, instead of a classroom setting, I'll call it a meeting setting to discuss it. One of the problems with a pure hands-on environment is if you're trying to have a discussion of what's been done, either as a preview or a review, uh, it's it's too informal, and it gets into the wandering away and the conversations to the side, where if you can get them together in a group and have structured reports and discussion, you can get the, the information that's covered, done well, and again, participation with everyone involved. My feeling is that if you look at what most restoration and cleaning technicians do, it's group work. Very seldom does this individual work alone, and so whether it's group work in a class or group less work on a project, there's a certain amount of team, teamwork and uh, leadership skills that come from this as well.
2: You know, you hit on something that um, I, I agree with is that there, it, there is a lot of teamwork that's done, and this is small team leadership. And I really think that a lot of this needs to be taught, a lot of this needs to be emphasized in these training classes because at some point we're hoping that person is going to go from a technician, you know, to a supervisor, and then up to a project manager. So it's real important that they, you know, understand teamwork, understand helping other people, uh, you know. And it's again, it's, I think it's much like military boot camp. Uh, there are a lot of things that, that are learned there, and I think some of those you know, techniques, you know, could be utilized. Um, you know, in my experience, textile cleaning is most often taught in a distributor's training room or perhaps in a meeting room at a hotel. How does the Jim Pemberton training experience differ from the industry standard? Uh, You know, anything else uh, differentiates?
4: Well, because I spent a couple of decades flying around and teaching in those environments, I understand what what limitations exist. It's it's really hard for those sponsors to bring in enough materials as far as uh, sofas and chairs and cushions and things that were soiled in the real world and that represent the variety of textiles that someone will get. Uh, The instructors do what they can, the sponsors work hard, but you you end up with more artificial situations than real world ones. What I'm able to do with our facility is have enough things to clean, first of all, so that every student cleans the better part of a sofa or a chair, not just uh, three inches of a cushion, as it were, and that they clean a variety of different types of natural and synthetic fibers and problem fabrics like silk and rayon and real-world soils as opposed to something that's been dragged around the parking lot. I only say that because I was forced to be in that position in the past. But these are the things that... When a student encounters difficult fabrics that have been really soiled in the way that they see it in the field, they gain more confidence. And, and that's the ultimate goal, is to have not have a person ooh and awe because a certain chemical cleans better or a certain tool does a great cleaning job, but to have them leaving with the belief that they are better at what they do and the confidence uh, and competence to perform that at a higher level.
2: Um, what about equipment? I mean, do you have multiple pieces of equipment? Um... Well, yes, because you need
4: to have you know, a certain amount of crews working and not just observation and demonstration. Uh, generally, there's two or three different pieces of equipment. There's a variety of tools that are used and compared so that this doesn't just become a cleaning system featuring one machine and one tool, but a variety of different ways to do this, depending on what the student has. Uh One of the realities is, especially if you have an employee, their boss may not be using the anointed chosen tool that maybe the instructor, including guys like myself, like. so you have to have uh, things available that they might be using in the field so they can get better at what they do uh, in that world that they have to go back to when they leave the class.
2: you know one of the things that I remember you know we used to do training for RIA, we used to teach a uh, certified restoration technician course, which was a combination of uh, you know, fire restoration skills and you know integrated with, with water damage because you know, typically when you have a fire, you generally have water damage as well. But one of the things that RIA always believed, and I think that they were right about it, was that the technician was the most important part of the job, that a technician with a bad tool could still do an adequate job, and uh, you know, uh, an inexperienced technician with a great tool isn't going to necessarily do a good job. It, it's really technician-dependent, and in terms of processes, they actually mandated that we demonstrate, like, seven different methods, you know, for cleaning upholstery, and, you know, multiple methods for, you know, for cleaning carpet, and You know, I really thought that that was good because they never took a position that one method was any better than any of the other ones. The position they took was the technician was the most important part of the process, and they wanted them to be familiar with multiple processes. And I really think that that's uh, really the way to do it. Um, And I I agree wholeheartedly. Um, You know, saying that, are you an advocate for facility-based training, and if so, why? What do you mean by
4: facility-based training? Explain that, Cliff.
2: Well, facility-based training uh, is that controlling the environment. Uh, You know, if, if, for instance, if you came to my house and you were going to, and you'd never been to my home before, and you were going to be teaching seven or eight different technicians, how to clean, it would seem difficult because you're not sure what types of fabrics that I have. Whereas in a facility, you control the environment. Number one, you can be sure that you have enough equipment. Number two, you can be sure that you have enough materials for them to clean. And I think one of the biggest parts of it is you can immerse them in what's going on in a safe way. Uh, you know, you can be sure that you know fumes are ventilated outside if you're using solvents, and you know I, I think so. It's it's just not like in a sterile classroom that that actually okay. it's going to be a very realistic setting.
4: As much, I mean, obviously I agree with that because I'm able to do that practically. I also know that across the country that's going to be hard to repeat. So all I I could tell you is that as much as possible, any type of training should have that. I mean. A safe environment is critical because, yes, I've, I've seen cases where uh, chemical fumes or exhaust from machines, things get out of control and you can sicken people in the class. That's dangerous in its entirety, but it's also a bad example because you, know, you have to have an example of all those things. Predictability of what's on hand is critical because uh, almost any training that I, I still do on the road is, is always a stressful experience, and I'm shipping a lot of stuff. I'm shipping huge boxes and almost crates of things because I, I need the students to have the things that they might encounter in the field. So you know, with that understanding of your description, yes, I agree with it. Also with an understanding that it is hard to repeat over a large area to do that. One of the things that I see happen that you know, back in the days when associations were stronger supporters of training is you had facilities available of very caring and giving members of the association, where you could go to their plant, and you had many of the things at that, that plant, or that uh, in restoration case, you know, cleaning warehouse that were already in place. Right. And those are great places to teach when available, but that takes some strong volunteerism and uh, altruism on the parts of the cleaners and restoration companies in those regions.
2: Yeah, but yeah, it seems to me that a lot of times the the owner of the company has a choice. You know, are they collecting certifications for themselves and for their employees or are they you know trying to you know to really learn the game and get good at the game and then hopefully get you know to the top of the game you know i I think it just seems to me that a lot of people um i don't know it's like they're just trying to take as many courses uh, if they can, so it could be on their cor- their card, and they can you know probably have all these initials after their name, certified, and all these different things. I think it may make them feel good, but uh, I'm not sure how much technical foundation uh, this whole thing is, is, is built on.
4: Cliff, I, I've got to tell you, just yesterday, I completed a course that had to do more with building and marketing business, but... Uh, The presenter shared information that essentially said, psychologically, this isn't marketing, but this applies just to what you said, that if we click on a link or we open up and reread a marketing idea, we get the same emotional satisfaction as having used it. And so what happens, and I think you've seen this happen in cleaning companies that will attend a marketing program or engage in some sort of new idea, and they never implement it and that's because they already got the subconscious satisfaction by reading it or participating in the class and i think that this is done with what you just said about collecting certifications they feel by doing that uh... it satisfies the need to say hey i've got a trained company But it's obvious because many of those companies don't engage in any ongoing training internally with their staff and if they don't do that then that's just been what I call training by inoculation. They had a couple of they experience and then it was never followed up on. So it, it's almost like how you started your interview with me about taking creating a class around a test. Well, it's the same thing. If you create your company's value around attending a course as opposed to creating its value around the finished product you create, that's where we get in trouble.
2: Okay. Okay. Um... How you know, one of the, the things that frustrated me about the IICRC uh, courses is the examination was the result of what I would call IICRC groupthink. And you have a bunch of guys that you know, get around a table in certain situations. You know, there may be bias. there may be someone whose personality is kind of dominant and domineering, or else he's got uh, time in the chair. You know, you know, seniority with the organization. and you know you end up with this with this examination. How do you incorporate independent thinking, alternative options, and problem solving into your courses?
4: I'm, I'm glad you weren't asking me to solve the first problem because you know that, that the That's issues right. with groupthink or the, the issues with dominant personalities is very difficult. If you're asking how do I just avoid that you know once you get into a classroom
2: right that's what I'm asking
4: yeah that that's a tough call because you, when you're trying to teach leadership, there's people ready to take leadership and run the class, and that takes an incredible amount of tact on the instructor's part, but very often those are the people that you can't let lead, and that uh, you know you've used a military example a couple of times, sometimes you almost have to break them down a little bit, and I certainly don't mean to berate them or humiliate them, but to do a few things that slows down their level of self-confidence or dominance and helps them understand their need to uh, shut up and listen. <laughs> and, and, and that often it comes by taking an earnest, but perhaps a little less experienced person and giving them some opportunities of growth uh, by trying a few things and by giving them some direction. And, and I think it helps both build confidence and teach humility at the same time.
2: You know, I remember one of the things that we used to do in our AMRT class that we taught is we broke people in groups, we had them uh, build containment. And one of the things that we would do is two of the groups were given the best tools and equipment necessary. The third group was uh, given less than that. You know, they were given you know some tools that may be broken uh, you know, materials which might not really be, uh, you know, in, in the best order. And uh, what was amazing is how that group that was stunted uh, in terms of the supplies would, you know, raise to the task and build a containment just as good as all the other ones, even that they didn't have the proper You know, working tools. And the lesson was that, you know, sometimes you get out in the field, you forget something, it's broken, a store's closed, you know, something's not available and you need to, you know, be able to work through it. And it was a valuable lesson. Uh, And, you know, we tried to put a couple of those into the course. I'm not sure whether you've ever, you know, tried to do something like that.
4: I guarantee you I will try it next time. I love the idea because that's real world. Yeah. Uh, that is what they will encounter. Uh, frustrations and learning to adapt on the fly is a big part of both cleaning and restoration tasks.
2: Yeah. And, you know, kind of thinking outside the box sometimes as well. And, you know, there may be a different way to do it. And, you know, sometimes there isn't, you know. And I think sometimes, you know, you got to roll the dice too. And, uh, you know, sometimes you win. And, you know, maybe more often you lose. But I think in certain situations, um, you know, there are just some fun parts. And I think some great stuff can come out of groups in terms of problem solving, uh, you know, on a really, really high level. And also, you know, using people who were strong in the skill in terms of bringing along other people that, you know, had less experience. You know, it's kind of in the military, you know, no man left behind or, or whatever. You would try to, you know, pair up the weak with the strong so that the strong would kind of, you know, kind of help help the other people that were having some difficulty. And uh, that was one of the things that was pretty rewarding uh, as well. In course. the course that you uh, teach, do you have any type of written examination practical examination?
4: No, I don't. Uh, frankly, the, the fact that the course does not lend itself to uh, vocabulary definitions or memorization, it, it would be hard to do. And if someone needs something like that, then I certainly would encourage that they can look at the ISCRC training. Uh, the participants in my program have the ability to have an ongoing uh, membership in a closed Facebook group where we can continue to participate and share problems and share ideas. It, in
2: my mind,
4: the best exam is their success in the field.
2: Okay. I, 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 I kind of like that. Um, if you had the power, authority, and a clean piece of paper, in what ways, if any, would you change industry education?
4: Uh, and the budget. <laughs>
2: But, right. Yes,
4: and and the time. Right. I I would first probably get around a lot of better minds than mine because one of the things I've learned as I as I've gotten older is how much I don't know. And and that's by no means false humility. It it really is true that there are some great people in this industry that under understand education better than me. But it would really be a, a, a clean sheet of paper because we need to have ways to better prepare people for the training experience as I mentioned too many people come into the the programs without adequate information and sending them a book a month ahead of time isn't enough because reading skills just aren't what they used to be or maybe they never were But there would be I think some some better work that would have to be done first by the owner of the company because I, I think that there isn't enough engagement by the people who send their employees to prepare them better they figure, well, I'm going to pay their tuition. That's the job of the trainer. It's not mine, and that's certainly like saying in public education, it's not the job of the parents to teach the kids anything. It's the job of the school. So it would include uh, a certain amount of required preparation training that that's really on the part of the owner of the company, uh, CBT training, computer-based training, and then at that point, then group and hands-on training at a, doing some of the things that I enjoy doing would make a lot of sense and still you could have a way to assess an exam later. But then there would have to be ongoing training afterwards. I I just believe that in someone's career path, there needs to be that. One of the frustrations with the ICRC models often the CEC or continuing education credits, but that's more of a matter of how it's monitored or how it's uh, assessed. The fact is that training needs to be ongoing as long as you're in a field. Uh, that's where the reciprocity would come in, too, where it's not just that certification institutes place to have that continued training, but any group and, and any way of showing that you're continuing to hone your craft. So that's a lot said in a few words, but that would be the what I would seek with.
2: Okay, Fair enough. I mean, as a trainer, you've been around this for a long time. Do you have any regrets? Yes.
4: Yes. Uh, my, I, I regret that I didn't sooner understand what the students needed from me. I, I spent too much of my life believing that the model we had, that is, the classroom uh, death by PowerPoint uh, lectures, were training these people adequately. And I did the best I could, I guess, with that circumstance, but in my, I should have listened to my heart that said I wasn't doing as good as these people deserved sooner. So I, I would say that's my biggest regret is that I, I didn't see this sooner. I, I have to give credit to Lisa Wagner, who uh, is a trainer in, in rug cleaning. Mm-hmm. She's the one that uh, really helped open my eyes to this and encouraged me to look at this in a way when I saw how she does group training. Uh, she's a pioneer in this industry and, and a person I highly regard, and I owe a lot to for helping me see a better way to do this. But that, yeah, that's the correct cliff.
2: As an industry trainer, what accomplishments are you most proud of? I,
4: I think seeing the growth in the people that I've been associated with as students, uh, hearing later and, and seeing the things they've done with their lives, seeing uh, people who've either enjoyed their, their career in cleaning and restoration or if they were the owner of the business just seeing the rewards they've had. And if any interaction they had with me in training or if anything they learned helped them get that, that's the thing I feel best about. I don't know that it's a pride, but certainly it's a great satisfaction to seeing people have better lives from what they've learned.
2: You know, before I give you the last word, we have one text question. And uh, what the question is, is technicians certainly need technical training what other business skills, if any, do you recommend business owners train their technicians in?
4: My guess is the question probably doesn't mean maybe business schools, but non, non-cleaning skills. Right. Because I, I, I don't know that we want our technicians to be knowing how to run our business. But yes, uh, communication is, is the biggest part of it. The ability... It's easy to say that a, a technician, a person that is performing a cleaning and restoration task, needs to be able to communicate. But you know, that's taking a person and asking them to do what's hard for them. People with strong technical skills rarely are good communicators. They tend to be quiet, uh, task driven people. And to ask them to be diplomats and sometimes salespeople is like trying to get a right handed person to write left handed. And yet, communication skills do need to be taught. Uh, So we could also call those customer service skills. uh, At a risk, sales skills, though, I I think that in restoration that's not as important as in cleaning. So let's just say, overall, uh, customer service, communication, uh, the diplomacy that comes with it they definitely need. Uh, Some organizational skills, uh, as we said earlier, teamwork, team building. lower management skills as in, you know, how to how to be a project manager. All, all of those things certainly can be non-technical and they're very important to the people we're trying to serve.
2: a good answer. Well, Jim, we've spent probably a little over an hour together. Um, is there anything that we always like to give, you know, our guests the last word. Is there anything that you would like to add, any questions that I didn't cover?
4: Uh, Cliff, you... You really gave me the opportunity to share a lot of things that are in my heart and and I would thank you for that. If there's anything that I would encourage the listeners to do, look at your company first and what its needs are and what your goals are and determine what training you need or your staff needs based on where you're trying to go. Just as we're asking the training bodies to develop their training based on a curricula or a need of the students, not the test please look at your own training needs as what goals are you trying to reach? What things will make your company more productive, more profitable, and a more rewarding place for your employees to work in or for you to own as a business? When you determine that, then you'll find the training that's right for you.
2: Well, Jim, um, this, is gonna, this is recorded. Uh, these are archived. How could listeners get in touch with you? Could you give your email address and your phone number and the name of the business, please?
4: Yes. Our our company is uh, Pemberton's Cleaning and Restoration Supplies, also known as Pemberton's Interlink Supplies. Uh, We can be reached at 800-342-2297. My personal extension is 107. Our website is uh, www.pembertons.com, and... uh, Anyone that wants to friend me on Facebook just can just look up Jim Pemberton, and our Facebook uh, is al- also Pemberton's Interlink Supplies. Uh, thank you very much for this opportunity, Cliff. I really enjoyed it.
2: Well, no, Jim, before we leave, uh, we want to thank you, uh, our guest today, Jim Pemberton, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, our engineer, John, you got to have faith, and most importantly, we want to thank you, our growing audience of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon, for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.
0: This has been another IAQ Radio production.